0: Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. morning to you. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to take it this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the last time, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are coming this morning to the end of our, our study together in 1 Timothy. I'll be out the next two weeks on vacation and then we'll begin a new sermon series when I return. Lord willing. But we're finishing First Timothy this morning. We're looking at verses 11 to uh, 21. I've said it before, but I'll, I'll say it again, that there are certain books that you read, there are other books that you reread, and then there are books that you devote your entire life to reading. You read them again and again and again, and I could... List several of those books on my list that I think are worth a lifetime of reading. But one of those books is John Murray's classic little book entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. The book it, it focuses on Christ's finished work on the cross and, and what that has achieved, redemption accomplished. And then in the second half of that book, Murray he goes on to talk about and show how the work of Christ is then applied to the believer in salvation. So redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And it's, it's a really helpful little book. I'd encourage anybody to read it. we have got several copies of it in our, in our church bookstore. But I picked it up this week and I began reading again, specifically the chapter in the book on The Perseverance of the Saints. Sometimes it's referred to as the security of the believer, although Murray says that's not a very helpful title. But the perseverance of the saints, it's it's the P in our tulip. And Murray says that one important aspect of what Christ purchased on the cross, what he accomplished, what he secured by his death and resurrection on the cross, is the believer's perseverance in faith to the end. Because that really is one of the age-old questions. Can I lose my salvation? Can Can I truly fall away from grace? And Murray, he says in this book, No, true believers cannot lose their salvation. Yes, they may fall into sin from time to time, but they can't, as he says, abandon themselves to sin. But he also says in this book, And he shows very helpfully how the believer must persevere in faith and obedience to Christ to the end. He says this, he says, the perseverance of the saints reminds us that only those who persevere to the end are truly saints. We do not attain to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus automatically. Perseverance, he says, means the engagement of our person in the most intense and concentrated devotion to those means which God has ordained for our achievement of his saving purposes. In other words, he's saying the perseverance of the saints, beloved, it doesn't mean that we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we are passive. It doesn't mean that we're uninvolved. Doesn't mean we're lazy towards putting sin to death and pursuing righteousness. That's what he means when he says it, it doesn't, we don't persevere automatically. No, he says it involves the engagement of our person in the most intense and concentrated devotion. We must actively persevere in faith to the end. But he's also very quick to then follow that up by saying that we do so only by the means that God has ordained for his saving purposes. So yes, we are active in this pursuit. We are active in persevering, but it is ultimately God's gracious work as the work of Christ is applied to us that the true believer is going to persevere to the end. And this perseverance, it includes both our life and our doctrine. We must persevere in both. And as we come here this morning to the end of this letter, this this final section here in verses 11 to 21, we see that perseverance is the topic on Paul's mind as well. One commentator says the predominant theme of this section is perseverance. Perseverance. And as Paul, he closes out this letter, he wants to conclude here by speaking to Timothy in a very personal way about Timothy's own perseverance. Why? Because he wants Timothy to persevere in faith. He wants him to reach the end. He wants him to finish well. And beloved, he wants the same for us as well. And so this is actually, I think, a very fitting ending to a letter that has focused now for the last five months on both our life and our doctrine. And here this morning we discover that both our life and our doctrine are essential in persevering to the end. And so Paul's challenge and his question to each of us this morning is, will we fight the good fight of faith to the end? Will we persevere? And he's going to give us here the motivation for doing so. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you have your place there, let me invite you to stand as we honor together the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer now, that grace would be with us. That your grace would be upon us now as we come to your word. Would you you open our hearts and minds? Help us to behold wonderful things from your law. Instruct us, teach us, strengthen faith so that we might persevere, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's pattern here in chapter 6 is actually very similar to what we've seen of him throughout this letter, where at certain points he is very pointedly critiquing and correcting and condemning his opponents, these false teachers in Ephesus, but here he immediately then will turn to some very personal pointed words of encouragement for young people. Timothy, back in chapter 1, notice this pattern. In verses 3 to 7, he gives there his first criticism and critique of these false teachers and what it is they were teaching and who they were. And then, if you notice down in chapter 1 in verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So he moves, notice, from false teachers, and then he contrasts that with his encouragement to Timothy. Timothy. Or you notice it in chapter 4, in verses 1 to 5. It's the very same pattern. He speaks of those who have departed from the faith, and and he blasts their heretical teaching. But then in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, If you, speaking here to Timothy, put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He speaks of them, and then he speaks directly to Timothy. Or in chapter 4, verse 16, notice down there, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. So notice the pattern shifting here back and forth from throughout this letter, these false teachers back to Timothy. And that's the exact same pattern. Notice we see here yet again this morning as Paul concludes this letter in verses 11 to 21. Last week, if you remember, Paul addressed these false teachers one final time in this letter. Notice in verses 3 to 10. But now, here in this final section, he concludes his letter by turning here one last time to personally address Timothy. Look there in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God... Notice the contrast there. But you, Timothy. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. Verse 20, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So notice the contrast between these false teachers and these very personal pointed instructions and words for Timothy. And as I said a moment ago, the predominant theme of this section is perseverance. Paul wants Timothy to persevere to the end. He wants him to persevere in his own faith. He wants him to persevere in obedience. He wants him to persevere in his ministry. And he's reminding him it will be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. and He cannot let up. You cannot become passive. Listen, there are far too many Christians today who take a casual approach to their faith, forgetting this is war. This is wartime. I think most of us, if we're honest, we don't believe that. We We don't live like that. We don't live like sin is deadly. We don't live like Satan is active. We don't live like we've got to strive to reach the end. And there will be many trials that will tempt us to abandon faith in Christ in this lifelong struggle. But in verse 12, he says, fight. Church, do we live like that? That it's wartime now? Not not just out there in here. You may say, "Well, Pastor, that that smacks of works righteousness." Beloved, we must be a people of the book. We must be able to hold intention the things that the Bible holds intention. You see, yes, salvation is a work of God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Bible is also clear that we must strive to reach the end. We must fight the good fight. So how do we do that? How do we fight the good fight? And as Paul concludes here, he reminds us three ways we do so. Three ways we fight the good fight. First, we fight the good fight by persevering in faith. Verses 11 to 16, we're going to spend almost all of our time there. Second, by living for eternal gain. Verses 17 to 19, so again, he's going to go to our money. And then third, by guarding the gospel. Verses 20 and 21. So how do we fight the good fight? Number one, first, by persevering in faith. Verses 11 to 16. This idea of perseverance and persevering in faith, it's seen clearly when we notice notice those, those four imperative verbs, those four commands in verses 11 and 12. Look there with me for a moment. Four commands he gives here. Verse 11, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Verse 11, pursue these things. Verse 12, fight The good fight of faith. Again, verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So notice that each of these are imperative verbs here. Each of these are, are active verbs with ongoing present action. It's emphasizing here the need for continual perseverance in these things. Things that we're, we must do if we're going to take hold of eternal life and persevere to the end. This is a call to perseverance. And we're going to look at those four commands. But then Paul also gives here some incentives. He gives some motivation for perseverance. Now, why, why the incentives? My children are much more likely to clean their room when I incentivize them. Why the incentives? Because he knows our tendency toward apathy. And he doesn't want us to let up, he doesn't want us to give up. And so we need some strong incentive if we're going to fight the fight of faith to the very end. Four commands. First, notice command number one flee sin. Flee sin. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Notice the contrast here with what has just come before where Paul has been describing these false teachers. You, you, you even see that contrast there in, in that title. O man of God. Timothy, that was them, but you, as a man of God, you, you must be radically different. And the first thing you must do, Timothy, verse 11, is you've got to flee these things. Flee what things? Well, the things he's just mentioned. Look there, verse 11. These things are a reference to everything listed back in verses 3 to 10. All, all of these things that his opponents were pursuing. Money. Worldliness. Materialism. Discontentment, envy, slander, dissension, friction among people. Flee these things. In other words, run from sin, Timothy. We we are to actively turn away from sin. We are to run as far and as fast as we can. We don't play around with sin. We don't mess around with sin. You don't poke the bear. You don't stick your hand in the beehive. You flee. John Owen, the Puritan, he said it best. Do you mortify sin? Do you kill sin, he says. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Flee. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he means it eternally. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Beloved, is that your response to ongoing, remaining, indwelling sin in your life? Are you fleeing it? Are you putting it to death? Are you coddling it or are you killing it? We must flee sin. Now, that's only half the equation. That's only one side of the coin. Not only are we to flee sin, but look there, verse eleven. Again, command number two: pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. Verse eleven: flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So we are to flee these things, he says, and we are to pursue these. We're to run from these, and we're to run towards these. Paul often describes this in his letters as putting off the old self and putting on the new self. So we put off and we put on. We flee sin and we pursue godliness. We pursue Christ-likeness. We pursue Christ. And that's the normal pattern of the Christian life. What are we to pursue? Look, he lists there six characteristics we are to pursue. Look there, verse 11. Notice what we're to pursue. First, he says we are to pursue righteousness. Righteousness. Now, this, this is not the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive in justification. Declared righteous. No, this is, this is practical righteousness. Meaning he's saying, Timothy, you are to live righteously. Timothy, you are are to live with integrity. You are to live with uprightness in all of your interactions. To pursue righteousness. And he says godliness. It's one of Paul's favorite words in this letter. Nine times he says it. Godliness. Meaning we are to seek God in all things. We are to live with devotion to God. We are to live a Godward life. And notice verse 11, he says, faith. Yes, notice, we have faith, but we are to pursue faith. Faith is something you are to pursue. You are to grow in this faith, Timothy. You aren't to settle and become lazy with the faith that you have. You've got to keep pursuing faith more and more and more. You must attend to this faith by the means of grace that God has given you. Reading his word, prayer, gathering with the saints on a Sunday morning. These are things that strengthen and increase faith. And he says love. Those always go together, faith and love. You can't have one without the other. Love for God, love for others. And then he says steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness, so we're to pursue this patient trust in the hard things. And gentleness, because frankly, the hard things can make you hard. So we flee sin, we pursue godliness, and just notice the intensity of that command. Run. Be active. Run to this, run away from this. Command number three. It's not just... Flight, but fight. Command number three, fight the fight of faith. Look there, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. That word fight there, Agonizomai, you can hear it in there, agony. It means it means to struggle. It means to strive. It means to strain. So literally, Paul's saying agonize the good agony of the faith. It's an athletic term for for straining, struggling, like in a race or like in a a wrestling match here. He's saying, fight, Timothy, strain, strive. Does faith in Christ ever seem like a struggle to you? Does, Does belief in Christ... Ever seem like a fight to you? Is, is there ever a struggle in your heart to, to love God and, and to believe and to desire God? Listen, if, if you say no, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. Believing in Christ is a fight of faith. It is a, it is a real struggle, and there are constant temptations to abandon the faith and give up the fight. This daily cry of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, in verse 12, notice the question, among many, is the precise meaning of the faith when he says, fight the fight of the faith. Is this this a reference here to Timothy's own personal, subjective faith, like Timothy's own faith, or is this more of reference to Timothy's ministerial faithfulness to the the faith, the objective faith of the gospel. Because in verse 12, notice he says, the faith. This seems like this body of content, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But I'm, I'm still more inclined here to view this as Timothy's own personal subjective faith in the gospel. Because later in verse 12, he's going to talk about Timothy making the good confession which is a reference to Timothy's own faith. So I don't think it's actually really helpful to delineate between the two here. So yes, Timothy, he must defend the faith, the gospel. He's going to say that in verse 20. But this is Timothy's own fight to keep the faith. This is a lifelong struggle, he says. So it's a call to perseverance to the end. Fight. Command number four, though, notice. Take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So notice that final command there. He says to take hold. Meaning to to exert intense force. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, grab on tight and don't let go. Hang on. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter is walking on the water and he begins to sink. And it says in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. He says, Timothy, grab onto the faith and don't let go. It's a call to perseverance by holding out eternal life as this prize to which we are to take hold of and we are to to grab onto. And so he's saying, Timothy, and he's saying to you and I, I want you to make every effort to persevere in faith, to persevere in godliness, to persevere in pursuing Christ, seizing hold of eternal life and not letting go. Oh, and by the way, that's the only way you're going to take hold of eternal life. You fight. You fight. It's a command to persevere. And let's be clear. This fight, this struggle, this ongoing pursuit, it doesn't mean we earn our salvation. It doesn't mean we work for our salvation. No. This is what it looks like to work out our own salvation. You see, my fear is that within the evangelical church, there is in our attempts to be gospel-centered, you've heard that terminology before, which is great, I love it, and we should be, we've we've somehow removed any notion that true saving faith results in ongoing obedience to Christ and perseverance in the faith. Because, well, that that just sounds like I'm working for my salvation, that smacks of legalism. But that just isn't the way the Bible talks about these things. As if Pursuing holiness and pursuing godliness is opposed to what the grace of God is working in and through us. And that's the call to persevere in the faith as the Spirit is working that in us. They're not opposed to each other. But then, notice Paul recognizes that in order to persevere... Because it's a fight, because it's a battle, it's a daily struggle, we need some motivation. We need some incentives. And he offers us here three motivations for why we should fight the good fight of faith. So allow these, I think, just to stir your your faith, to incentivize you this morning. Number one, first, first motivation. Timothy, the reason you should fight the good fight of faith is because you were called. Because God graciously and sovereignly called you, look third verse twelve. Fight the fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Meaning, it was God who effectually and sovereignly called you to salvation. That you, at one point in your life, Timothy, you heard the gospel. And the spirit of God, he moved upon you in power and he effectually and he irresistibly called you to himself out of sin and death before the foundation of the world. He elected you. And then at a moment in time, he called you to this salvation. He called you. So notice that our taking hold of eternal life is only our response to God's Prior action of calling us. So our work is based on his work in us. And therefore, ultimately, he's the one that's going to hold us fast. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, I press on to make it my own. That's what I do. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's what God did. Timothy, you were called. So fight. Motivation number two. The reason you should fight is because you've made the good confession. You've made the good confession. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 12, that, that word there to confess, it means, it means to declare publicly. It's usually, it means confessing Christ publicly. Timothy, you've you've made the good confession. Now, what's the good confession? Well, I think this is no doubt a reference here to Timothy's own conversion. It's his public profession of faith in Christ. Perhaps it is baptism. So notice this is not only this inward effectual call, but this outward public confession. Beloved, can you think back to that moment in your life? Can you think back to that moment in your life where you made the good confession? And in verse 12, he says, notice it was done in the presence of many witnesses. Beloved, the Christian faith is a public faith. It is a faith that is worked out in a community of believers. This is one of the reasons why every Potential member of Second Baptist Church, whether they're transferring their membership or they're being baptized into membership, we ask to stand and give a public testimony of their faith in Christ to make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul's reminding Timothy here, he's saying, Timothy, you have taken an oath of allegiance to the king, you've confessed your loyalty to the king. And you've been enlisted in the army of the king. And so now go to war. Remember the good confession, Timothy, that you've made. And I can't help but think perhaps there are some of you here this morning that you need to make that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You need to to confess Christ publicly and perhaps be baptized in obedience to Jesus. The good confession. That's the second motivation. Motivation number three, though, notice. The reason you should fight the good fight of faith, Timothy, is because of who this God is that you have confessed. Verses 13 to 16, notice Paul, he turns Timothy's attention now Godward. He he wants to fix his heart and his mind on on God. And so notice, he draws his attention here to God and and who he is and what he has done in Christ as motivation for Timothy to keep fighting. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Notice first here, just notice that solemn charge in verse 13. I, I charge you, Timothy, I command you. Command what? Verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now, what's the commandment? Well, I think it's most likely that, that Paul is speaking here of the Christian faith as a kind of commandment. Paul often talks about this in his letters as the obedience of faith. But I think he's talking about the, the Christian faith here. The obedience of the faith. So Timothy, Paul says, is to keep the gospel, the commandment, the faith, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. Now, what does that mean? In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you need to watch your life and your doctrine carefully. Keep a close watch. That's the charge. But then, notice the motivation he gives. What, what's the incentive for doing this? Because, look there, Timothy has two witnesses here to this solemn charge. God the Father and God the Son. First notice he draws attention here to God the Father in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. Timothy, you are living before the very face of God. You are living in the presence of God who sees all and who knows all. And in verse 13, he gives life to all. He is the giver and the sustainer of all life. And this God, he sees, and he's with you, and he is for you, and he loves you, and the eyes of the living God are upon you. So keep fighting. But second, notice he draws attention to God, the Son. In verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. It was Christ Jesus who, before Pilate, he made his own good confession. Remember what that confession was? Are you the king of the Jews? I am. He didn't shrink back in fear, but for the joy that set before him, he made a good confession and he persevered. And in doing so, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be counted righteous because of his obedience, because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness. And so Timothy, persevere, don't give up the fight, keep fighting. And so how long must we keep this charge? How long must we persevere and keep fighting? We'll look at verse 14. Only till Jesus returns. Verse 14. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And so in verse 14, he's saying, Timothy, this struggle is not going to last forever. Christ is coming. He's returning. Friend, do you believe that? That he, he is coming on the clouds. And he will appear. And every eye will see him. And all will bow to him. And he will reward on that day all who stand firm to the end. In other words, this faith is worth fighting for. And it will be worth it on that day. So don't give up. Brothers and sisters, our struggle, it won't be in vain. And then notice in verses 15 and 16, it's almost as if the very mention of our God who's coming, it sends Paul now into this outburst of worship. This doxology. It's probably some early church hymn or creed. Here. And so, as he meditates here on God, I mean, it just sort of spills forth from his pen and praise and an exaltation. Look there in verse 15, he says, Let me remind you, Timothy, he is all powerful. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he is beyond all earthly powers. Kingdoms and kings rise and fall by his sovereign decree. There is no threat to his rule. There is no threat to his authority. He is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over all world events. He alone is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. And verse 16, notice, he is immortal. Look there, verse 16. He alone has immortality. Only God possesses life in himself. He is the eternal one. He's the everlasting one. He's the unchanging one. And verse 16, he's the holy one. Look there. Who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. The radiant glory and brilliance of his awesome holiness means he's unapproachable. He's inaccessible. Why? Because we're sinners and he's holy, holy, holy. And therefore no human eye is able to see his glory and live. And yet this holy God has made a way for sinners to stand in the presence of his holiness and not be consumed. And therefore, verse 16, he's worthy of all praise to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This great God, He alone deserves all glory and eternal dominion, and He's going to rule forever and forever, and everything in creation is singularly aimed at His glory alone. And therefore, fight the fight. Is it worth it? You betcha. And listen, I know that some of you right now are struggling in the fight. It is a struggle. And there are days where you want to give up and you feel overwhelmed. And when you want to give up, Paul says, fix your eyes on the glory of God that's coming. Fix your eyes on this Christ who's returning. It's worth it. So how do we fight the fight? We persevere in faith to the end. There's a second way. I'll be much more brief. Don't worry. How do we fight the fight of faith? Second, by living for eternal gain. Verses 17 to 19. You know, I was reading that and I thought, man, Verse 16, that would be a very fitting place to end this letter, right? To end with his glorious doxology, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. He's done, but he doesn't, he doesn't end there. He's not quite done yet. In fact, it's almost as if verses 17 to 21 are like a PS of Paul's letter. It's like a a postscript. And now he wants to clarify something in verses 17 to 19. And he wants to emphasize something in verses 20 and 21. Look at verses 17 to 19. Paul wants to clarify something now he has said earlier. And he has one final word here to the rich. In fact, notice he mentions that word rich there four times in these words or in these verses. It's it's sort of like a play on words actually. Notice in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Or verse 18, they're to do good to be rich in good works. So he wants to say something to the rich here. But he wants to clarify something he said earlier. Why? Well, notice last week in verse 9, he spoke about those who desire to be rich, the false teachers. But now here in verses 17 to 19, he's speaking to the believing rich. He's speaking to believers here. And he wants to clarify something about riches. And what he wants to clarify for us is that riches aren't the problem. Verse 9, it's the desire to be rich that's the problem. It's it's the, the discontentment. It's the love of money that's the problem. And these false teachers, they love money. They don't love God. And you can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't have two allegiances, but there's nothing wrong with riches. No, it's all about how the Christian thinks about their riches and uses their riches. And he wants to focus here on the priority for the Christian of living not for earthly, but for eternal gain. Now, you may read verse 17 and say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. When in reality, everyone in this room is rich. Rich is a relative. I get get that. In fact, I would just say if you have any discretionary income left over at the end of the month, anything beyond the basic necessities of food and clothing, you're rich. I mean, if you step back and get a global perspective, you're rich. So how then should we view and use our earthly riches? That's that's what's on Paul's mind here. And here's what he says. The second way we fight the fight of faith is by living for eternity. By living for eternal riches. And using our earthly means for eternal gain. Look there in verse 17. First he says the danger of being rich. Verse 17. We already mentioned this last week, so I won't go into detail. But I just want to remind you of it. What are the dangers of riches? Well, look what he says there. If we're not careful, riches, the desire for riches, they can make us proud and self sufficient. Look what he says there, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Riches can make you proud, they can puff you up. And verse 17, they give you the false sense, false illusion of self security. Look there, verse 17. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So they make you proud, they make you self-sufficient. We're tempted to hope in them rather than God. They, they distract us from eternal things. These are the dangers. So what's the Christian to do? we well, look there, verse 18 and 19: the duties of being rich. The duties of the rich. What is his instruction then for these believing rich? Look at verse 18. They're to do good, to be rich, notice, not monetarily, in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, for eternity, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Live for eternity. How are they to live? Live for eternal gain. How? By being generous. Being ready to share, verse 18. By storing up treasures in heaven, verse 19. We give away our money here for the cause of Christ. We give away our money here for the spread of the gospel, and we store up eternal treasure in heaven. Now, let me ask you doesn't that sound like a wise investment strategy? Because you can't take it with you when you die. We saw that back in verse 7. You bought nothing into the world. You can take nothing out of the world. So why not take what you have now and send it on ahead where it's going to be turned into eternal treasures and eternal gain leading to everlasting joy in God? So maybe this means... Again, riches are not wrong. But maybe this means that when God gives us more, that instead of increasing our standard of living, which is often what we do, we increase, as Randy Alcorn says, our standard of giving. You say, well, that sounds extreme. I was thinking, I don't think that anyone is going to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, he's going to say, you were way too generous. Like, you gave way too much. No. There's a story of John Wesley, the the famous Methodist pastor and missionary, who, as he actually grew in popularity and riches, to got more famous, he, be, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give away. So what he did was he set a standard of living for himself, of what it was going to take to live on, and he never, until the day he died, exceeded that. Everything else, he gave away. Living for eternal gain. And so maybe we take our earthly treasures and we send them on ahead of us because we can't take them with us. But you know what we can do? We can take others with us. And beloved, there are 4.7 billion people in the world today who are on the wide road that leads to eternal destruction. And 2 billion of those 4.7 billion have no access to the gospel. So to put this in perspective, think of one particular region in northern India. Probably not a whole lot different than maybe in Central Asia, I don't know. But one region in northern India, a very unreached place, and given there that the death rate in that region is about 5,000 people per day, And the number of evangelicals in that region is estimated at less than 0.01%. That's about 9,999 people who are plunged into hell every two days. So how are we living? Are, Are we living like countless people are headed for an eternal hell? Because those who are fighting the fight of faith are going to live for eternity. Church, are we showing the world that Christ is infinitely more satisfying than stuff? God is gain. And one of the ways we show that to the world is by giving to see God's work advance to the end of the earth. For the sake of the gospel, so are we living for eternal gain. But there's one final way we fight and it's really the summary of everything in this letter. Here it is finally. How do we fight the fight? By guarding the good news of the gospel. Verse 20. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Church, this message we have is so precious. And we will guard what is precious to us. And so as Paul closes his letter, he turns again now to the main emphasis that we've seen throughout this letter, and he reminds Timothy here of his main task. Timothy, Second Baptist Church, you must... Guard this message. You must persevere in protecting the gospel. This is how you fight the fight of faith. You guard the gospel, you preserve it, you protect it. Look at verse 20. He calls it the deposit. It's a message that has been entrusted to our care. It didn't originate with us, we're merely stewards. We receive that which has been handed down and passed down to us, just like Timothy. Which means two things. Number one, we have to pass it on. As is. (laughs) And second, we protect it from threats. So first, we pass it on as is. We we, got to share it. we don't change it. We don't alter it. We don't make improvement to it. We, We don't make it more palatable for the culture. And we simply pass it on, just as it was passed on to us. I mean, beloved, do you realize and ever stop and consider what it cost throughout the centuries, throughout history, for the gospel to get to you? And second, we protect it from dangerous threats. Look there, verse 20. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by those, by for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So we we must fight by guarding the gospel from, from error. We we must defend the truth. And the truth is under attack today, isn't it? Church, it is vitally essential that in every generation. The gospel is reaffirmed, reestablished, and defended. Why? Because it's our responsibility to guard it. Because it's the only message that saves. There is salvation in no one else, it's the only message of grace for sinners. And the church, this church, must stand as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul ends here. Notice back where he began in verse 21. Look what he says there. Grace be with you. The you there is plural, actually. Meaning this isn't just for Timothy. This isn't just for the church at Ephesus. This is for you. This is for us. And so may God give us the grace, I pray, to stand and fight. By persevering in the faith, by living for eternal gain, and by protecting the gospel. Because it's the only message that saves. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, Visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.